2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is our spring season finale. We're going to be taking the summer off after this. I am Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And on the line with me, uh, and suffering, suffering, I say, from the Houston allergies, is Dr. David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, I won't ask you how you are, David, but, uh, what hope have you to be rescued from this, uh, allergy of death? Uh,
0: I don't don't know, but I need some kind of rescue, man. Like, this is me with meds in my system. So,
2: listeners, that's, uh, what you're going to be hearing this hour. Uh, just, you know, be sure to respond with pity for grubs rather than irritation because, uh, this is for real,
0: yo.
1: Also, by the time they're yep. hearing this, Grubbs is another father, a father again. He continues yes. to be a father.
0: <laughs> but but a father it, in a different mode. A father of greater, at greater magnitude. I, I I'm not entirely sure how how it works, but but yes, my, my Quiver will be fuller.
1: Do you want to go ahead and announce what the baby's name is now, David?
0: Can't because we don't know uh, we don't know gender.
1: There's a joke to be made there, and I'm not going to make it.
2: The guy not making the joke right there is Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, How are things, Michael?
1: They're good. By the time this airs, I will not have any more papers to grade, so that's a very good thing.
2: That is a very good thing indeed. Uh, So, over on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, we've got a sectarian review episode on Infinity War. Uh, apparently the u.s congress issued an edict that uh every podcast had to do an episode on it so they did uh what else do we have going on the network guys
1: well i'm very pleased to announce that probably the week after this uh comes up i think uh nathan and i will be interviewing steve taylor who uh, found our episode of i predict 1990 and emailed us
0: that's so rad
1: but I have to say I am ninety percent certain that Josh Altman, chauffeur, is the one who got him to listen to the uh, to the
2: episode. So thanks, Josh, which is also very rad. Uh, we've also got trying to think a Christian Humanist Profiles episode coming up on a, a beginner's introduction to Dante. I conducted that interview with Jason Baxter, and that should be a good listen. Uh, trying to think any uh, recent City of Man rumblings. I don't think so. All right, no rumblings. Well, off we go then. Uh, If you're not an academic, you might have no idea who Eric Bennett is. But if you are, odds are somebody on your feed has posted a link to his recent essay, Dear Humanities Profs, We Are the Problem. Uh, This is one that uh, has been posted with uh, various levels of approval, dismay, uh, eye-rolling, hand-wringing, all kinds of groovy things. So I figured we could talk about it for a season finale, right? So Michael, this essay begins with a rhetorical first-person pronoun, a recurring we across the first five paragraphs who stand in some kind of relationship to the world of letters. Who are we at the beginning of this essay, and what's the status of that world of letters?
1: We are humanities professors. As you might imagine from a title like Dear Humanities Profs, we are the problem. Um, Bennett is an English professor, and he seems to be speaking largely as an English professor, although he also mentions philosophers, historians, art historians, etc., 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 and then, of course, the cultural studies folks who tend to transcend those various departments uh, and become their own thing altogether. What's more is he's speaking as a person on the, the left side of the American political Perspective. So the third paragraph talks about how we have published books like *The Signifying Monkey*, *Critique of Postcolonial Reason*, *Gender Trouble*, *Ethics of Identity*. These are these are books that are uh, I don't want to say radical because I don't think there's anything terribly radical about a guy like uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, but um, they they are. Books uh, in some ways that are about identity politics, and so he's talking from within that group, uh, which is a smaller group within the group that the three of us belong to—humanities professors. Have I left out? Yeah. Uh, have I left out anything meaningful about the we there?
2: No, I mean the uh, political identification I think is important because some of the claims that he makes some of the exhortations that he issues, uh, you might assume that they're coming from a more cultural conservative uh, point of view, but I mean, he really, I mean, does some work at the beginning to establish that, you know, the we in this essay are, you know, like you said, more liberal-leaning professors. So uh, in some ways, you know, the essay is directed, like you said, at, you know, not the entire Academy uh, but, you know, a very identifiable subset of that Academy. Uh, David, I mean, is there anything else to say about the, the opening of this essay, or do you want to move on to the next bit?
0: I just have a question. Is the actual biographical, this dude in real life we the same as the rhetorical we? I don't know anything about his reputation, his publications, or anything like that.
2: I've never heard of him. Yeah, and I didn't look him up. Now that you say that, David, I should have.
0: So yeah, I, I guess what I'm asking is: is this is this a uh, light, uh, something analogous to uh, what has happened to us evangelical Jeremiads by people who, in other ways, are not uh, not recognizably evangelical. That's
1: if... certainly the way I read it. I, I read it as being akin to the Michael Gerson article that we talked about a month ago or whenever that was. Is is in this is a this is a critique from inside and thus the 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 rhetorical we is the same as the historical we, but I like I said I've never heard of this guy. The byline says he teaches at Providence College, which I think is a kind of uh what would you call it? Nominal Roman Catholic college. Is that is that accurate?
0: Oh, I don't know. I just thought it was Rhode Island or something.
1: It is in Rhode Island, but I think it's a Roman Catholic college the way Georgetown is a Roman Catholic college, but I, I could be wrong about that.
0: Okay.
2: Okay, so listeners, if anyone actually knows Eric Bennett or knows of Eric Bennett, by all means, let us know. But David, I mean, the essay itself is a myth-making essay, I think, and in particular, this is a myth with a golden age that gives away to the grand fall. So should we look for a serpent in a garden, a box of miseries, an underworld deity come to abduct a wife or some other event that leads to the ruin of everything good here.
0: The story that I see here is one of an idealistic quest that actually uh, led to, actually, or what was perceived as, he, This is this is something that he's a little bit ambiguous on. Um, an idealistic quest that led to ineffectual disengagement uh, from the the matters of the here and now. Uh, the story that he tells is of a sort of post World War II humanities attempting to establish the humanities as an anti-partisan, anti-populist, anti. Demagogue force for cultural values that have some kind of uh, transis- transcendence and resistance to what uh, you know what sort of imminent cultural forces uh, could 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 use for for swaying the masses. Basically, this is uh, the humanities as a a pursuit of something higher and. Uh, a nobler that would, that would help those who were devoted to it to resist uh, well Hitler's frankly uh, and then uh, the way it proceeds uh, according to the story as he tells it is that uh, going into the 60s you have the rise of the 60s counterculture uh, along with uh, the Vietnam War and the, uh, the frustration with uh, the ambivalence of, a kind of, old, of the, the sort of old-style humanities that he's talking about, what was by then the old-style humanities, uh, a, uh, a rejection of that from the young, young folk because that, that sort of idealism that's not plugged into the political here and now uh, was seen as, as ineffectual and even complicit in those, uh, those parts of the establishment that the counterculture uh, pushed back against and uh, because of that uh, he sees that as, as leading to a shift in humanities uh, towards uh, completely away from that, that sort of idealistic s- quest for something transcendent but instead uh, let's make it all about engagement with the here and now all the time um that there's you know various uh, various moves that he identifies uh, in, in that way more or less uh with the result that he says now uh the humanities is uh, are are indistinguishable from sort of current politics uh in their uh at, at least in, in their in their motives in their sense of what's uh, what's important to engage in, uh, and in there, uh, I, th- I think what he would would call their narrowness. Uh, I, I can't remember him using that word specifically, but the a, a sort of narrowness of of cultural and historical focus is is something that that he identifies there as well. That's his. That's the narrative I see there. Um, any. Any episodes that I glossed over, things you want to fill out?
1: Yeah, it, there's a, you're right to call it a narrowness in the sense that it narrows as a kind of political or partisan gloss. But at the same time, you also get a broadening of what gets studied by the humanities, the, the much ballyhooed collapse of the high and low culture distinction. And I, I think that's a really important part of what we're talking about here, because once you start talking about popular culture as an English professor, it's going to be very difficult for you to stay above the fray of contemporary issues.
0: Yeah, that's that's an important point. Uh, sorry I left that out. Thank you for augmenting me. <laughs> well,
2: Michael, I want to turn the corner and, you know, In this myth that David talked about and that you augmented there, um, Bennett situates the new criticism and the post-war university as a sort of height of English department's importance in American culture. And if there's anything I've learned as a humanities professor, it's to ask what historical narratives do rhetorically. So I mean, what kind of alternative stories does this version of the story oppose and what aims does it seem to have for the readers?
1: Get out your bingo cards because I'm going to talk about Lionel Trilling. Woohoo! Trilling's interesting. Um, this this article talks for a, a couple paragraphs about Dwight Macdonald as a very similar figure to Trilling in some ways, uh, in the sense that both of them began as communist and then became really eloquent defenders of the liberal, broad, broadly speaking, liberal order as it's manifested in high culture. And both of them kind of get thrown out in 1968. There's a famous story that I've probably told on the podcast before about Trilling, um, whereby during the student protest at Columbia in 1968, um, somebody spray paints, F you Trilling, you bourgeoisie pig, on his door Uh, and the Louis Menand article, I read that it uh, says that it must've been someone who failed French class because they said bourgeoisie instead of bourgeois. Um, But so, so in, in that sense, I think Trilling really goes well with the narrative that Bennett's telling here. And the sense that Trilling is a guy who really did have heroic lofty ideas of what culture was supposed to do. High culture was supposed to do over and above Low culture, mass cult, and uh, and and kind of partisan politics, but Trilling is instructive in terms of framing this another way as well, because Trilling was the first Jewish professor ever to teach at Columbia, and they wouldn't let him teach by himself. He had to co-teach with Jacques Barzun, and I, I think that's an important that's an important thing that can be obscured by this uh, by this narrative he's telling, which is that. The, the model of the high culture English department that stays above the fray of partisan politics is built largely on a kind of self-satisfied um, waspiness, if, if, if that's the right way to put it. Um, by and large, the people in the mid-20th century who were doing this, not by and large, almost exclusively, are, are white men and I, I, think that they are operating from a, a place of privilege when they remove literature from contemporary politics. Um, that doesn't negate what Bennett's saying, but it does complicate it. It does, it does put another narrative alongside it. Uh, yeah, um, what do you guys think of that?
2: I think that's a good wrinkle to put on it, but I think this also, you know, informs uh, his. Preference that you know kind of runs through this article for the complex over the one-dimensional, right? Uh, and again, you know, there's several reasons to prefer complexity to one-dimensionalness. Uh, but you know, the New Criticism, you know, tends to elevate those works that have the ambiguity to them, that have the internal strife to them. Uh, but you're right, Michael. I mean, the New Criticism itself has a history. It emerges contingently. Uh, you know, with certain realities of of class and of religion and so on and so forth,
1: and not incidentally, it emerges from that southern agrarian tradition. And he he touches on this briefly because he disapprovingly quotes a book by North. Is that the guy's name? Yeah, Joseph North's literary history, a concise political history. He disapprovingly quotes this book um, because North apparently critiques the new criticism as an outgrowth of Southern agrarianism. And I I think Bennett rightly points out that it's not that simple, that the, yeah, it's the same people. It's John Crow Ransom, and Alan Tate, and people like that. But this is the next stage for them. It is not an extension of Southern agrarianism. It's something else done by the same people who do it. And that is more complicated than just calling... um, Calling new criticism neo confederacy or anything like that, uh, but it, it is true that there are some unpleasant racial, political, sexual uh, realities attached to this golden era of, of literary criticism,
2: right? And that's what makes Bennett's case for it so interesting because he is, in a lot of ways, making a political case for a criticism that, you know, ostensibly transcends politics, right? He says that, you know, the real power of the new criticism, uh, and of the, you know, the height of the English department more generally, uh, is that this focus on complexity means that it can't be as easily appropriated by, uh, demagogues and ideologies and so on and so forth. You know, every time you try to pin it down and to, you know, file it neatly into its bin, uh, there is a wrinkle that unfolds and all of a sudden, you know, you can't do that anymore. So I mean it's it it's interesting. I mean one uh trend that he really doesn't mention in this article, or if he does, I missed it, you guys can correct me here, uh, is deconstruction, right? Which seems to be in some ways the error of that, you know, new critical emphasis on uh complexity and paradox taken to, you know, a certainly a parallel, you know, kingdom, if you will. Uh, where instead of paradox you've got contradiction instead of, got, instead of tension uh, you have uh, I, I don't even know what to call it you know irresolvable tension and so on and so forth but uh, you know it seems like he goes straight from new criticism into cultural studies without even stopping to look at post-structuralism deconstructionism things like that
1: which really does bridge that gap
2: yeah say more michael
1: well i mean as you as you point out it's 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 new criticism it's not just the uh the intentional fallacy it becomes the death of the author right so you move from and beardsley into bart fairly um fairly easily uh and and in that sense it's maybe even more above the fray of partisan politics than anything else because uh you know at its worst, I think deconstruction says the text doesn't have anything to do with anything other than itself and other texts, but on the other hand, almost all the deconstructionists, almost all the post structuralists almost all the post modernists are political radicals and and I mean Derrida famously says justice is the one thing that can't be deconstructed, and justice has a lot of meanings, of course, but I think it's pretty clear what he means by justice, and it's a fairly standard. Uh, liberal to radical left meaning of justice and so you you have those two things simultaneously on the one hand the text becomes so knotted and labyrinthine that it doesn't it, it's not beholden to contemporary politics but on the other hand we're given absolute power over the text right the death of the author is the birth of the reader for Bart, and because we're all political radicals we can play with the text in such a way that it suits our politics. So I really do think deconstruction is not the opposite of cultural studies. It really is kind of a stepping stone from new criticism to cultural studies.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good narrative. I think that's a good narrative. Have I told you the story about that book, Michael, The Deconstruction in a Nutshell, where he tells that, where he says that that justice cannot be de- deconstructed?
1: No, no. Tell, I mean, I, I learned that quote from you. So
2: but. Oh, and it's a—it's not a uh, profound story by any means, but uh, I checked that out from my uh, college library at Milligan College back in the late 90s when I was an undergrad, and uh, where they had placed the barcode on the front cover, uh, it covered up just the right letters so that the title became Deconstruction in Hell.
1: That's fun. That'd be a good title. <laughs> <laughs> James K. A. Smith has that book, uh, The Devil Reads Derrida. Well,
2: this is the companion volume, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I mean, David, do you have anything to chime in there? I mean, what you know, one other, you know, omission here is you know any kind of literature that you know is old.
0: Yeah, th- this is this is an education to me, you guys. I'm, I'm so disengaged with the eras that you're talking about here, and I know that I'm not in some in some sense magically above them or uninfluenced by them, uh, but. I'm, this is this is a genealogy that I'm not prepared to trace in the way that you're doing it. So I I appreciate you doing this work. Uh, one of the things that I do know about much more much more closely is uh, Tolkien's essay "Beowulf of Monsters and the Critics," which has sometimes been connected with New Criticism, but that's that's not quite right. Um, for one thing, he's delivering it, you know. In the 30s, uh, but in that essay, he's calling scholars of the poem Beowulf to pay a, to pay attention to the way the poem functions as a poem, and to and to focus their attention on those uh, those artistic realities. What it is what is it that the poem the poet is is attempting to to accomplish through poetry? And of course, back then, he still believes in authors and all that sort of thing. Uh, but he's doing this in response to an old style of historicism that looked at texts like Beowulf mainly as fodder for their reconstruction of, his, of historical cultural pasts. Mm.
2: Uh, a philological approach to it, in other words.
0: He, uh, a philological pr- approach to it that was also in the interest of filling out uh, the fr- the frankly national self understanding of of the scholars who are who are researching these poems uh, from the perspective of this is part of my cultural heritage and so I am attempting to better understand uh, the history of my people and what makes us what we are. Oh, that's um,
1: interesting, David. Because that's a very popular attitude in American studies around that time. I mean, that's why Moby Dick becomes a great American novel because it's supposed to tell us something about the American soul.
0: Well, that's uh, I, that, that's exactly something that, that Tolkien's resisting because he sees, you know, he's looking at it from the perspective of someone who's reading these, uh, you know, early medieval uh, Germanic poems, but he's doing it at the back end of you know something like close to a hundred years of argument about whose heritage is Beowulf, and is it German? Is it Danish? Is it more broadly Scandinavian? Is it English? Um, and, I'll, and chart that onto sort of the nineteenth-century nationalism and the the role of this, uh, the the academic studies of these kinds of texts in the uh, very self-conscious self-construction of these national identities in that period. Um, And Tolkien is resistant to Beowulf being reduced to that kind of historical quarry from which we can build the castle of us.
2: Right. I mean, it's reminiscent of the way that Friedrich Nietzsche uh, treats the national literatures of, you know, Italy and Germany and so on and so forth in his essays. You know, the presence of this word and the formation of this phrase indicate something about the Italian soul that makes it so much lighter and bolder than the Germanic soul and things like that. Right, David?
0: Right. And he is still still interested in the way the poem reflects on a culture, but it's on the culture of the poet. And it's not the it's not what does Beowulf tell us about us, or our culture, or Germanness today, or Danishness today, or Englishness today, but how is this a window into a voice at a place and a time, reflecting even on the past of that place and time, um, and that uh, maybe maybe there's there's a parallel to the way Bennett is is uh, setting up his. His take on New Criticism as an attempt to uh, set literature up as something that is resistant to that that kind of uh, imme- immediate political utility. Uh, he's Beow- uh, Tolkien seems to be making uh, similar sorts of uh, complaints about those uh, about the uses of Beowulf. So. I you know this is just my attempt to make everything about Tolkien and Beowulf because heck we already told people to play bingo right.
2: <laughs> well, I think that's relevant, David, because I mean one of my uh, anxieties when I read this is when I read Bennett's account of literature as transcending politics. My own historicist and postmodern leanings, not to mention my love for Aristotle, want to say that there are better ways to be political and worse ways to be political but there's no way for human existence to stand beyond the political. But I think that there is something going on here that I probably should heed. So as is often the case, David, I'm going to ask you to correct my critical theory excesses here. What is to commend in Bennett's call for a literary studies that does something other than simple partisanship?
0: I'm going to make some suggestions uh, about what what he says here that uh, I, I would see as as more useful, and then I'm going to let you guys finish it. Uh, partly because my own notions of this are, are very unfa- are very unfinished, and also because I sound like this. So, the question that I would ask is: He he keeps talking about literature transcending politics, and I think you rightly call him on that when you you point out you know Aristotle. Uh, the sense that everything a human does is done in the in the community of other humans, and in that sense is is part of the polis, is part of the community, and, and so is political. And he seems to see uh, this part of the value of this uh, this old humanities project that he's holding up for us. Uh, part of the value he sees in it is that it was an attempt to make uh, some kind of community. Uh, the oh, what, what's the what's the phrase that he uses uh, affirming uh, alternative forms of community, uh, or, uh, other than that, which which is based on uh, immediate partisan uh, immediate partisanship. Anyway, uh, so one, I think you're right. I, I think if he says we need to get the politics out of it, he's he's not quite being. Uh, entirely accurate. So, what is uh, what is he meaning? Um, I think I would uh, I would ask the question: Is the political mere, merely the partisan? All right. Uh, if the political is is reducible to merely what is the immediate partisan fight of the day, then then maybe he would be saying get politics out of the humanities. But if you construe the political more broadly, I, I, I don't think he is. Uh, when he talks about the sort of thing that he wants to get out of the humanities, uh, he, he points out things like cynicism, or uh, a compulsive anti-establishment uh, attitude, that whatever whatever is established must come down, uh, a kind of compul- uh, a sort of uh, reflexive individualism that assumes whatever whatever they say uh is is probably wrong in attempting to manipulate me uh, that, that that sort of skeptical paranoid flavor in partisan politics uh, a historical narrowness in partisan politics in which whatever fight we're having today is literally the most interesting thing and everything ever comes down to that um
1: and if it doesn't say anything about it, it must be on the other side.
0: Yes, because it's just so dang important that, that you know it it must be it must be the most important thing, and you ignoring it is itself an attack. Uh, a re- reflexively derisive and divisive uh, uh, sort of tone uh, and approach to uh, political messaging, uh, a chauvinism. Uh, not not simply in the sense of male chauvinism but chauvinism in that old sense of a kind of unreasoning loyalty to your side my side's right, whatever they do your side's wrong, whatever it does uh, that that ridiculous Twitter you know, to quoque argument uh, well your guy did this thing and, and your guy did that thing um, th- those seem to be the kinds of things that he points out as that's the politics he, that that he sees as having invaded the humanities when they made the, the imminent immediate partisan political the most important thing. Uh, he sees that as having unleashed some of the worst instincts of populist demagoguery, which he wants us to be able to critique, but it makes it very hard to do that when you are yourself succumbing to those same worst instincts. Uh, so what he presents instead is a united pursuit of something other than that immediate partisan dispute. The human the humanities as as that united pursuit of that something other that something uh, something seen to be transcending this moment uh, that isn't ju- that that isn't reducible to this or that side of this immediate partisan dispute can aid a community in resisting those instincts because there is this other common thing that joins them together. And this, I mean, is this just Matthew Arnold saying literature is going to replace religion again? Is is that, is that the sort of thing that he seems to be suggesting?
1: Uh, part, of, part of the problem is I'm not really sure what he's suggesting. I'm not sure what he thinks literary studies should be. yeah. And, and bringing up the new criticism is weird to me because, granted, this is not a terribly charitable way to, to read the new criticism, but I think of the new criticism mostly as counting commas. You know what I mean? <laughs> this 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 very abstract, um, r- removed approach to the literary text as kind of artifact or um, maybe even puzzle. I, I find that very... Unappealing, and in some ways, I would rather have the the kind of partisan cultural studies model than that, because at least I think I know how to do the partisan. St- I I see what the goals are, but when John Crow ransom or whoever talks about criticism incorporated. You know and we should turn this into a science I get very confused and if that's what Bennett wants I, I need him to tell me specifically what this is going to look like rather than just kind of gesturing back at Dwight MacDonald. because it's it's hard to think of somebody who was more interested in contemporary issues than MacDonald.
0: yeah I you're gonna have to be be the annotated version of this article for me because he so many of those gestures that you that you just pointed to. I don't know what he's gesturing towards, <laughs> so that that's helpful for me to know, Michael.
2: Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, the. Uh, I I think certainly I mean Michael's critique here of criticism Inc. by uh, Ransom. I mean is is valid. I I think another trend though, and I think this might be what Bennett is trying to point towards in New Criticism is that value of the ambiguous and the complex. I mean, yeah. is, is that a fair read, Michael? Yes. So, I mean, I, I wonder if, you know, one of the phenomena that he's critiquing, and this might just be me, you know, projecting my own anxieties onto this essay, as I tend to do, uh, is the so common social media phenomenon where, you know, someone whose name might be Gilmore, you know, tries to bring up the complexity in some public issue, and immediately the moral purity police descend upon hypothetical person who might be Gilmore and says that, you know, if you're posing these kinds of questions and if you're, you know, trying to explore it as some kind of artifact, then you are objectively on the side of injustice.
1: You're complicit. You're normalized.
2: Yes, yeah, complicit. Thank you for using that word. I, I, was, I was searching for that but couldn't find it
0: the kind of nothing-buttery approach. You know, this thing is nothing but that thing.
2: Right, right. And then, you know, when hypothetical person who might be Gilmore says there might be also variables, you know, gamma, epsilon, you know, so on and so forth, uh, then, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, well, you know, all you're doing is, you know, helping the side of oppression.
0: (laughs) I thought binaries were bad things, unless they're good things.
2: No, the, the... The
1: the binary is bad movement is, I mean, other than particular uh, gender applications today, I, I would say that's much more associated with uh, post-structuralism than it is with cultural studies, uh, especially cultural studies writ nineteen or uh, 2018. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, th-
2: mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I mean, when I think of examinations of things that try to bring in a plurality of variables i feel like and i could be wrong here and you guys please tell me if i'm wrong here i feel like i am more likely to see that kind of examination from uh you know a more old school kind of philosophical thinker than i am from someone who is a very committed partisan thinker
0: so dualism is back is that what you're telling me
1: you you're on twitter aren't you david
0: yeah but I follow a very <laughs> narrow swath of people man I I don't follow yeah yeah but let's just say my, my 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 field of vision in Twitter is incredibly narrow because frankly I don't want to be made uncomfortable by other people and I, I did I didn't get on social media to get people that power over me
1: dualism is hardcore back
0: yeah, I concur. It's I one
1: concur. of it's one of Oprah's favorite things this year: dualism, sweater capes,
2: calypso music.
0: <laughs> is,
2: is, and, and and Michael just dropped the line of the podcast. I can't top that.
0: Is it the Pantoed color of the year?
2: <laughs> Black
1: and white. <laughs> so I mean, maybe the problem is not that literature is discussing particular issues even in a partisan way maybe a literary criticism excuse me maybe the problem is that literary criticism is discussing partisan issues stupidly
2: yeah I don't disagree with that
1: but again I would want to know like I would like to see an example of of a literary critical text that's doing that I mean part of the problem is the only time I read contemporary literary criticism is when it's on when I'm doing research for my own work, or when I interview somebody for profiles. And both of those things are kind of self-selecting. So I'll, I'll fully admit to not being totally up to date on the latest developments in literary criticism. But um, would you say that what we've been describing is typical of, of humanities work in 2018? Or is it just typical of the way people talk on Twitter?
2: I think it's more prevalent on Twitter, but I have read articles that exhibit these kinds of things that Bennett's talking about, yes. So I mean I'm not gonna say that it doesn't exist. I think that there's a there are other currents, if you will, that exist alongside that one. David?
0: <laughs> Dude, I I don't know. <laughs> I I I yeah. Yeah, uh, dear listeners, if you don't recognize my limits uh, by now, uh, please, please, that now now's the time to know. Uh, I I'm just radically disengaged from this conversation in so many ways. Not that I'm uninterested. I just don't want to spend the time doing the required reading to catch up.
2: Well, anyway. <laughs> I
0: mean, Michael, this is says, that selfish? I'll go ahead. Is that selfish of me? Is that is that? I mean, do do I need to just commit myself to this and and, and make that comps list of things so that I could speak to that issue? Like, I I,
1: I, I kind of think it might be good for you. I mean, I would like to know if something similar is going on in medieval studies because that would seem to me to be a field that is a little more removed from what we're talking about just by the nature of the things you study. But that may just be, you know, I may just be me not knowing anything about medievalism.
0: Maybe so. Uh, there is, uh, I think, in medieval studies, there has always been a kind of uh, a kind of historicism that was current, even even through the New Critical, simply because so much. Raw history is necessary, even for just engaging the text. Right? Uh, it's it's very easy to do New Criticism in the literature of a contemporary language, where you can pretend that somehow the text just is all by itself. Uh, but if it's Old English, the the history sort of imposes itself upon you, and when the history does, so does the political. Um, you know, you can't. You can't read the sorts of things that I study, as if they aren't, in some senses, about how humans ought to be together in community, and some of those better and worse ways of being, being, then impinge upon better and worse ways of being now. Um, you know that that's. I can't imagine doing what I do apolitically.
1: Right, I'm glad you brought that up david because yesterday we were talking about how you you teach majority minority classes at houston baptist and you use these ancient medieval however I, I don't know the terminology these old books to speak to their contemporary issues but presumably you do so in a way that doesn't reduce the books to tracks
0: i hope so um, part of it is is trying to give that kind of uh, attunedness in my student to current issues uh, to, to take advantage of that to give them a route into a text um, you know when uh, when I cover the Aeneid in my Great Works uh, Wood class uh, one of the things I talk about is uh, I show them uh, artistic depictions of Dido. Uh, I give them you know some background on the punic wars and basically set the the characterization of queen Dido of carthage within the larger context of the roman uh roman perception of of the the phoenician of the carthaginian and that 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 opposition there you know frankly i i you know i i call it orientalism right even though carthage is slightly west of rome uh, Phoenicia is, uh, the, you know, the Phoenicians were not tired, they were they, those were eastern cities. Uh, so when I, when I talk about that, that concept, which is, you know, it's, it's one of the ones that uh, I, I avail myself of from the current political, from the current poli- c- critical uh, field. When I apply that to the Indian, I don't think I'm doing violence to the Indian, though, uh, because it's so manifestly there the ways in which uh, the Carthaginians are, su- in which the the poet is simultaneously drawing on these, uh, frankly, uh, chauvinist tropes about Carthage and about Dido but other ways in which she uh, she and her people rise above that characterization, uh, that something more complicated is going on, that I can't just say, Dino and the Aeneid, nothing but racism. Right. Uh, uh, or, so, or
1: the Aeneid demands that you vote this particular way, or something ridiculous like that.
0: Right, right. It's, 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 more, uh, it's more to say, here's a place in which your horizons, join their horizons, and this gives us maybe some some access into thinking and feeling within this text uh, on its own terms in its original place and time. And when we pull back from that, maybe we'll bring some things with us. Maybe there are some virtues uh, in this text, maybe there are some vices in this text that you're gonna find relevant uh, in your own place and time. But this text doesn't exist simply for its relevance to your place and time, uh, but nor is it nor is it cut off from that. It's not as if uh, its its pristine removal from your place and time is its value. But nor is its value its utility in your place and time. Um, I, I, I I try to find some kind of a balance there, as, as difficult as, as that might be, um, but. It's something that's more, uh, something that is maybe easier to model than it is to articulate, and it's still hard to model.
1: Yeah, and it'd be hard to say what that would look like in terms of formal literary criticism as well. But I, I definitely see what you're what you're saying in terms of like how we how we teach these things. We let the we let the text speak into the modern age rather than forcing the text to say things we want it to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, for someone who has read as little Gautamer as David has, I mean, I think he just dropped some Gautamer on us.
1: Well, he's heard <laughs> us talk uh, talking about it for five years.
0: It, yeah. It, true it, enough, it, true it, enough. Itty it, it, Gautamer I picked up off you guys.
2: Well, Mike, I want to turn to the uh, end of this essay. It ends with a call to reclaim some version of citizenship as the true aim of humane studies. So, uh, you know, that's kind of an Aristotelian tone. I dig that. To what extent does that call make sense in 2018 in, you know, a very pluralistic America? And to what extent might Christians and Christian humanities professors, if we happen to know any, hear that call differently than other readers of the Chronicle of Higher Education? So here's a place where I think the canon wars of the
1: 1990s might be helpful. The canon wars, for those of you who are not intimately involved in this profession, um, have to do with people questioning whether the canon, the list of books that people tend to read in college, is uh, sexist or racist. Uh, Those are the two big ones. Um, and, And so... During the 90s, and a little bit before, but especially during the 90s, you get these calls to either destroy the canon or open it up or create alternate canons that will run alongside the main one or whatever. But here's where here's where I think thinking about what the canon is, thinking about what books we read, may actually help us be better citizens in a plural age. Because if if we're talking Lee or however, Grubbsian, Grubbsianly about particular texts... We need not stop at the Aeneid. There's things we could do with Invisible Man or Toni Morrison, or Sandra Cisneros, or all sorts of other texts that exist outside of what people in the 1950s and 60s would have represent would have recognized as high culture. Um, we're able to take those things, listen to them, and kind of construct a broader notion of what citizenship is and should be. We can use we can use texts that come from contexts different than our own, be it uh, horizontally in terms of coming from other cultures in the 21st century, or vertically in in terms of you know medieval stuff that comes from a radically different culture. We can look at those, let them speak, and understand you know, where other people are coming from, understand different modes of being, and then hopefully be above politics in the sense that um, we spread out overall politics and kind of construct uh, a larger idea of what it means to be a citizen.
2: And it's interesting, Michael. I mean, I think you're absolutely right there. This makes his, what I would call, knee-jerk reaction against pop culture studies so bizarre because... Agreed. I think that there is a spectrum of complexity within pop culture itself, right? I mean, you know, that's part of the reason we keep doing this podcast is because there are pop culture artifacts uh, that, you know, really do reward some careful examination to an extent that other pop culture artifacts don't, right? Uh, There's a reason that we can do, you know, an entire episode on a Bob Dylan album and not exhaust it, right? uh, there's something going on there that, you know, that his, you know, and and I'm going to say Adorno flavored disdain for pop culture just doesn't leave any room for. Uh, does that make some sense? I mean, I, I, I think that's the part of this essay that has me twisted up more than anything else is that he is making a call for a certain kind of reading, but then he is walling off certain artifacts that encourage and reward that kind of reading.
1: Well, and the, the other thing is the the stuff that's going to let in people who have traditionally not been part of the canon are going to be things that don't immediately appear to belong in the canon, right? Because because the sorts of culture available to people who were locked out of the main canon aren't going to be like the main canon, and so you have to expand your view of what's appropriate, Uh you know, I mean, we did that episode on Miles Davis, for example, and and that's not classical music, but um, that doesn't mean SMB. it doesn't it doesn't mean it has its doesn't have its complexity and its rewards. Give
0: it give it time. I mean, uh, a lot of what makes something classic is the perspective of a culture looking back at the artifact and recognizing the degree to which that thing has made it. Um, and and I th- I think it. I, I, in that in that sort of way, it we could call it classic.
1: Well, and and the uh, the maintainers of the high culture low culture divide have their own sort of ah hysteris- uh, historicity. Is that a word? That they're yes. ahistorical one. in their own way, in the sense that they seem to have forgotten that uh, the novel was a low culture form until early in the twentieth century.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, much classical music contains dance music you know what i mean this was a popular art form um i'm sure you can tell me everything i need to know about epic poetry not being meant for the ma- for uh, for uh, an elite audience so, so th- this notion this notion that we have to defend culture against pop culture i think is overly reductive although there's certainly plenty of garbage pop culture that that destroys humanity rather than elevating it
2: Oh, sure, I don't think we need to wall off that possibility to say that there's also a possibility that certain artifacts, you know, produced in order to make a profit can also lead to very interesting questions that we wouldn't pose unless we encounter those artifacts.
1: Right. And if Let- and if what we do is find new questions to ask, I don't know why you would rule I don't know why you would rule pop culture out entirely.
0: Yeah. I I, th- I think this the sorts of things that he, that the places where he nails it, uh, is in, is in his call to our continued engagement and aiming for something that trans- transcends the most immediate political partisan goals of the moment. Not necessarily engagement and 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 ceasing to pay attention to those things or or uh, walling off all that pop contemporary culture, uh, it's, it''s it's not so much disengagement as it is exclusive engagement, which may be the problem. And that may, maybe that would be a way to hear this more productive, more productively. And frankly, I think that would be reading this essay against the grain. Um, I, I, I think he he, he mostly wants, some folks to just stop it, uh, but maybe just stopping it, whatever it is, uh, isn't necessarily the the thing that ought to be done. So much as, yes, maybe continue to do that contemporary partisan political current issue engagement stuff, but don't do it in the ad. Well, don't do it having disengaged with this other project. Um, you know, don't leave the scrub, but be able to lift your head out above the scrub to see what's going on on the rest of the field.
1: Or, yeah, or, I mean, maybe just don't d- demand that everybody else do it exactly the way you do it. I, I'm, I'm certainly I'm certainly thankful for an awful lot of cultural studies readings of an awful lot of things. I mean, I, cultural studies is not a bad thing, and, and there's things that can only be said that way that are interesting and revelatory about both particular works of art and humanity in general. But there is a certain narrowness that comes in when everybody is doing cultural studies. The way, I mean, if you read literary criticism from the 80s, it gets tedious very quickly because everybody's doing bad Derrida. So, I (laughs) mean, ironically, I mean, maybe the problem here is a cultural studies hegemony, um, given that cultural studies is originally enacted in order to combat very real hegemony. Maybe maybe we've swung too far in that direction.
0: Well, would everybody is countercultural? No one is countercultural? You know? Uh, and I, I will say as uh, as bourgeois as I am, uh, I teach I teach the Hail to the Baskervilles in my in my composition course, which is basically an introduction to lit class. So one, here I am teaching old pop culture, right? I mean, yeah, it's Arthur Conan Doyle. He's still pretty canonical by now, I guess. Um, but I find it really fun to get to the end of that novel and reveal that this woman who's been up inside the novel and the narrative the whole time, as a potential romantic partner, as uh, as a center of mystery, all the rest of it, uh, the whole time, She has been a woman from Costa Rica, and was never. Spoiler alert! And was never identified as such. Uh, There was a you know, there was a Latina in the middle of the story the whole time, and nobody saw her. And she's not identified until the very end. And I, I love getting to that moment with my students, and a lot of, uh, uh, and I usually get. Three or four papers over over my class over the the spread of my classes each spring. I usually get a, co- a you know a couple papers per class of students who that was the thing that they that they really connected to that they were really interested in uh, is the fact that here is a woman that has a lot in common with them and she's in this story where she's the she's the element that didn't belong, and nobody recognized it until the end. It's it's really, really interesting. Well, tell
2: you what, David, I think it's about time that we wrap up this conversation and wrap up this season. We have not exhausted everything that this essay talks about, and we haven't even touched on the response online that this essay has garnered, so I'll let you swing at either of those two pitches. And uh, we'll take it around the horn here.
0: I don't have a lot to say. I haven't read any of the responses online. You know, we we've, we've talked about how narrow my Twitter is. Um, so so there's that. I I hadn't even known about this piece till you put it at me, Nathan. Uh, the other thing though that I do want to say. Did you guys like the prose? I I did not like the prose. It was like the sentence where he talked about sifting the shadow of a monolith I don't even know how (laughs) you do that that's like it was it was just really really florid shadow shifter
1: is my favorite G.I. Joe though
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay I could see that I could see that I didn't make that connection that's not a real G.I. Joe but it totally sounds like it could be Um Anyway, I th- there were a lot of points in this essay where I was just like, dude, just settle in and write a clear sentence. You know, just put down your thesaurus. Stop being flowery. We don't need that. Um, yeah, that that's that's my only comment. I I really hate the way it's written.
2: Yeah, my favorite bad sentence, David, is uh, in the second decade of the twenty first century, the long standing professional disinclination. To distinguish better from worse does not inspire confidence.
1: neither does it sentence
2: <laughs> What do you got Michael
1: I, I I don't know I don't know how much I liked the article, but I have liked what it has made me think about in terms of the the way we talk about literature and art and humanity stuff on this this podcast, uh, I assume that that stuff is there to reveal the world to us. That, that what art does is show us things we otherwise wouldn't have seen. And I think in the time he's glorifying the forties and fifties, early sixties, people swung too hard for the, uni- what's universal in art that, that, that we need to, we need to kind of transcend the present moment. Um, and I, I wonder, that that's a problem, right? Because it leaves out all sorts of important stuff. Part of part of things being revelatory is that they reveal things that, that weren't around 50 years ago. Um, and now, though, I feel like maybe we've gone too far in the other direction, and we've moved too far away from the idea of a universal at all. Uh, and I, I, I think that whatever we're reading, uh, by whatever author, whatever whatever background they come from, we should probably try to keep both the particular and the universal in mind as much as we can at all times. So, in other words, if you're reading um, if you're reading Toni Morrison, don't forget that she's a woman and a black woman. That's important stuff. But also, let's assume that she's capable of talking about things other than being a woman and a black woman and and let's assume that she can speak to people other than black women just like we should assume that uh, oh I don't know Updike or whoever is capable of speaking to more than just white men even though we have to keep in mind he is a white man and thus has probably certain blinders that might be worth thinking about Um, but thinking about blinders is not the same thing as dismissing somebody
2: Good word, good word. A lot of the online responses that I've seen to this have either been uh, knee-jerk rounds of applause because he is calling for a return to high literature or knee-jerk dismissals because he doesn't like pop culture. I I think that both of those responses have something right to them. Uh, I think that you know there are, as we discussed today, pop culture artifacts that really don't deserve the attention they get. I think that there are... Uh, things to be commended uh, about certain other pop culture artifacts. And I think that if there's going to be a third way other than, you know, pop culture all the time, nothing else on one hand, and stay away from that pop stuff on the other hand, we're going to have to make some kind of value judgment about what makes a text, uh, as I reach for my postmodern lexicon, uh, valuable for reading. I think that, you know, we can affirm complexity without saying that only high literature has it. I think that we can say, uh, you know, certain dehumanizing moves make a text inherently less valuable without saying that they never happen in the so-called classics. Uh, But I think that, you know, one of the things that, as moderns, we're afraid of is to own those value judgments. And so we try to code them With these uh, genre distinctions Uh, and here I go using that rhetorical we right Uh, so apparently I've uh, picked up some bad habits from this essay but at any rate folks this is it for this uh, school year we're going to be gone from the summer by all means keep watching the Christian Humanist Radio Network usually we have some shows from City of Man Christian Feminist podcast uh, Book of Nature Christian Humanist profiles there will be shows coming out this summer uh, but the three of us in this capacity will probably return in August 2018. Uh, so, adieu for the summer. If you want to find us on the web, we're at christianhumanist.org. You can email us at theChristianHumanist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Of course, we always welcome uh, iTunes reviews. That's how most people find their podcasts. And uh, if you can get someone starting to listen through our back catalog, uh, that's often how we've gotten some of our most interesting feedback, responses, and conversations out of this. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern this year, and thank you for a year well done, has been Ellen Peterson. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, I am Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.